Chapter fifty five of the Hidden Hand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Hidden Hand by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter fifty five. The Fortunate Bath. Heaven has to all allotted soon or late some lucky revolution of their fate, whose motions, if we watch and guide with skill, for human good depends on human will. Our fortune rolls as from a smooth descent, and from the first impression takes its bent. Now, now she meets you with a glorious prize, and spreads her locks before you as she flies. Dryden. Meanwhile, what had our young adventurer been doing in all those months between September and June? Travers, with his two hundred dollars, had set out for New Orleans about the first of October. But by the time he had paid his travelling expenses, and fitted himself out with a respectable suit of professional black and a few necessary books, his little capital had diminished three quarters. So that when he found himself settled in his new office, in a highly respectable quarter of the city, he had but fifty dollars and a few dimes left. A portion of this sum was expended in a cheap sofa bed, a closed washstand, and a spirit lamp coffee boiler, for Travers determined to lodge in his office and board himself, which will have this additional advantage, said the cheerful fellow to himself, for besides saving me from debt, it will keep me always on hand for calls. The fever, though it was October, had scarcely abated. Indeed, on the contrary, it seemed to have revived and increased in virulency in consequence of the premature return of many people who had fled on its first appearance, and in who coming back too soon to the infected atmosphere are less able to withstand contagion than those who had remained. That Travers escaped the plague was owing not so much to his favorite theory as to his vigorous constitution. Pure blood, and regular habits of temperance, cleanliness, and cheerful activity of mind and body. Just then the demand was greater than the supply of medical service. Travers found plenty to do, and his pleasant young face and hopeful and confident manners won him great favor in sick rooms, where, whether it were to be ascribed to his theory, his practice, or to the happy, inspiring influence of his personal presence, or to all these together, with the blessing of the Lord upon them, it is certain that he was very successful in raising the sick. It is true that he did not earn five dollars in as many days, for his practice, like that of almost every very young professional man, was among the indigent. But what of that? What if he were not running up heavy accounts against wealthy patrons? He was giving to the poor, not money, for he himself was as poor as any of them. But his time, labor, and professional skill, he was giving to the poor. He was lending to the Lord and he liked the security. And the most successful speculator that ever made a fortune on change never, never invested time, labor, or money to a surer advantage. And this I would say for the encouragement of all young persons in similar circumstances. Do not be impatient if the returns are a little while delayed, for they are so sure and so rich that they are quite worth waiting for, nor will the waiting be long. Give your services cheerfully, also, for the Lord loveth a cheerful giver." Travers managed to keep out of debt. He regularly paid his office rent and his laundress's bill. He daily purchased his mutton shop, or pound of beefsteak, and broiled it himself. He made his coffee, swept and dusted his office, put up his sofa bed, blacked his boots, and, oh, miracle of independence, he mended his own gloves, and sewed on his own shirt buttons. For you may depend that the widow's son knew how to do all these things. Nor was there a bit of hardship in his having to wait so upon himself. 
though if his mother and Clara, in their well-provided and comfortable home at Willow Heights, had only known how destitute the young man was of female aid and comfort, how they would have cried, "'No one but himself to mend his poor dear gloves! Oh, oh, boo-hoo-hoo!' Traverse never alluded to his straitened circumstances, but boasted of the comfort of his quarters and the extent of his practice, and declared his income already exceeded his outlay, which was perfectly true, since he was resolved to live within it, whatever it might be. As the fever began to subside, Traverse's practice declined, and about the middle of November his occupation was gone. We said that his office was in the most respectable locality in the city. It was, in fact, on the ground floor of a first-class hotel. It happened that one night, near the close of winter, Traverse lay awake on his sofa bedstead, turning over in his mind how he should contrive to make both ends meet at the conclusion of the present term, and feeling as near despondency as it was possible for his buoyant and God-trusting soul to be, when there came a loud ringing at his office bell. This reminded him of the stirring days and nights of the preceding autumn. He started up at once to answer the summons. "'Who's there?' "'Is Dr. Rockin?' "'Yes, what's wanted?' "'A gentleman, sir, in the house here, sir, taken very bad.' "'Wants the doctor directly. Room number 555. "'Very well. I will be with the gentleman immediately,' answered Traverse, plunging his head into a basin of cold water and drying it hastily. In five minutes Traverse was in the office of the hotel, inquiring for a waiter to show him up into 555. One was ordered to attend him, who led the way up several flights of stairs and around divers galleries, until he opened a door and ushered the doctor immediately into the sick-room. There was a little old, dried-up Frenchwoman, in a brown merino gown, and a high-crowned muslin cap, who hopped and chattered about the bed like a frightened magpie. "'Oui, monsieur le docteur,' she screamed, jumping at Traverse in a way to make him start back. "'Oui, monsieur le docteur, I am very happy to see you.' "'Voila, mon frère, behold my brother, he is ill, he is vera ill, he is dead, he is vera dead.' "'I hope not,' said Traverse, approaching the bed." Voila! Behold! Mojou! He is vera still. He is vera cold. He is vera dead. What can you do, mon frère? My brother to save. Be composed, madame, if you please, and allow me to examine my patient, said Traverse. Ma foi! I know not what you speak, compose. What can you, my brother, to save? Much, I hope, madame. But you must leave me to examine my patient, and not interrupt me, said Traverse passing his hand over the naked chest of the sick man. Mojou, I know not exam and interrupt, and I know not what you can m'offrir to save. If you don't hush parlevouing, the doctor can do nothing, mum, said the waiter, in a respectful tone. Travers found his patient in a bad condition, in a stupor, if not in a state of positive insensibility. The surface of his body was cold as ice, and apparently without the least vitality. If he was not, as his sister had expressed it, very dead, he was certainly next to it. By close questioning, and by putting his questions in various forms, the doctor learned from the chattering little magpie of a Frenchwoman that the patient had been ill for nine days, that he had been under the care of Monsieur le docteur Cartier, that there had been a consultation of physicians, that they had prescribed for him and given him over, that le docteur Cartier still attended him, but was at this instant in attendance as an accoucheur to a lady in extreme danger, whom he could not leave, 
but Dr. Cartier had directed them, in his unavoidable absence, to call in the skillful, the talented, the soon-to-be illustrious young Dr. Rock, who was also near at hand. The heart of Traverse thrilled with joy. The Lord had remembered him. His best skill spent upon the poor and needy, who could make him no return, but whose lives he had succeeded in saving, had reached the ears of the celebrated Dr. C., who had, with the unobtrusive magnanimity of real genius, quietly recommended him to his own patrons. Oh, well he would do his very best, not only to advance his own professional interests, and to please his mother and Clara, but also to do honor to the magnanimous Dr. C.'s recommendation. Here, too, was an opportunity of putting in practice his favorite theory. But first of all, it was necessary to be informed of the preceding mode of treatment and its results. So he further questioned the little restless magpie, and by ingeniously framed inquiries, succeeded in gaining from her the necessary knowledge of his patient's antecedents. He examined all the medicines that had been used, and informed himself of their effects upon the disease. But the most serious difficulty of all seemed to be the impossibility of raising vital action upon the cold, dead skin. The chattering little woman informed him that the patient had been covered with blisters that would not pull, that would not delineate, that would not, what you call it, draw. Travers could easily believe this, for not only the skin, but the very flesh of the old doctor seemed bloodless and lifeless. Now for his theory. What would kill a healthy man with a perfect circulation might save the life of this dying one, whose whole surface, inch deep, seemed already dead. Put him in a bath of mustard water, as hot as you can bear your own hand in, and continue to raise the temperature slowly, watching the effect, for about five minutes. I will go down and prepare a cordial draught to be taken the moment he gets back to bed, said Dr. Rock, who immediately left the room. His directions were all but too well obeyed. The bathing-tub was quickly brought into the chamber, and filled with water as hot as the nurse could bear her hand in. Then the invalid was hastily invested in a slight bathing-gown, and lifted by two servants, and laid in the hot bath. "'Now bring quickly, water boiling,' said the little old woman imperatively. And when a large copper kettle was forthcoming, she took it, and began to pour a stream of hissing, bubbling water in at the foot of the bath. The skin of the torpid patient had been reddening for a few seconds, so as to prove that its sensibility was returning. And now, when the stream from the kettle began to mix with the already very hot bath, and to raise its temperature almost to boiling, suddenly there was heard a cry from the bath, and the patient, with the agility of youth and health, skipped out of the tub and into his bed, kicking vigorously and exclaiming, "'Brigands! Assassins! You have scalded my legs to death!' "'Glory be to the Lord! He's saved!' cried one of the waiters, a devout Irishman. Siella, he speaks, he moves, he lives. Mon frere, cried the little Frenchman, going to him. Ah, murderers, bandits, you've scalded me to death. I'll have you all before the commissioner. He scolds, he threatens, he swears. He gets well. Mon frere, cried the old woman, busying herself to change his clothes and put on his flannel nightgown. They then tucked him up warmly in bed, and put bottles of hot water all around, to keep up this newly stimulated circulation. At that moment Dr. Rock came in, put his hand into the bathtub, and could scarcely repress a cry of pain and of horror. The water scalded his fingers. What must it have done to the sick man? "'Good heavens, madam! I did not tell you to parboil your patient!' exclaimed Travers, speaking to the old woman. Travers was shocked to find how perilously his orders had been exceeded. Eh bien, monsieur, he lives, he does well. 
Voila, mon frère, exclaimed the little old woman. It was true. The accidental, boiling bath, as it might almost be called, had effected what perhaps no other means in the world could, a restored circulation. The disease was broken up, and the convalescence of the patient was rapid. And as Travers kept his own secret concerning the accidental high temperature of that bath, which everyone considered a fearful and successful experiment, the fame of Dr. Rock spread over the whole city and country. He would soon have made a fortune in New Orleans, had not the hand of destiny beckoned him elsewhere. It happened thus. The old Frenchman whose life Travers had, partly by accident, and partly by design, succeeded in saving, comprehended perfectly well how narrow his escape from death had been, and attributed his restoration solely to the genius, skill, and boldness of his young physician, and was grateful accordingly with all a Frenchman's noisy demonstration. He called Travers his friend, his deliverer, his son. One day, as soon as he found himself strong enough to think of pursuing his journey, he called his son into the room, and explained to him that he, Dr. Pierre Sajan, was the proprietor of a private insane asylum, very exclusive, very quiet, very aristocratic, indeed, receiving none but patients of the highest rank, that this retreat was situated on the wooded banks of a charming lake in one of the most healthy and beautiful neighborhoods of East Feliciana, that he had originally come down to the city to engage the services of some young physician of talent as his assistant, and finally, that he would be delighted, enraptured, if his deliverer, his friend, his son, would accept the post. Now Travers particularly wished to study the various phases of mental derangement, a department of his professional education that had hitherto been open to him only through books. He explained this to his old friend, the French physician, who immediately went off into ecstatic exclamations of joy as, "'Good! Great! Grand!' and, I shall now repay my good child, my dear son, for his so excellent skill. The terms of the engagement were soon arranged, and Travers prepared to accompany his new friend to his beautiful retreat, the private madhouse. But Travers wrote to his mother and to Clara in Virginia, and also to Herbert Grayson in Mexico, to apprise them of his good fortune. End of chapter 55